0: So James chapter 3, moving back into our series on James, and um, I may be cutting this short this morning, Um, well, short, short for me, but uh, I don't think I'm going to get through everything I had prepared, but that's okay, Uh, we'll pick it up next time. But in his book, Your God is Too Safe, author and former pastor Mark Buchanan makes a reference to a comical but very sad and true story. In 1964, Ypsilanti, Michigan, there was not just one Jesus Christ. There weren't two. In 1964, in Ypsilanti, Michigan, there were no fewer than three Jesus Christs. All three were residents at the psychiatric ward of the local hospital. Their real names were Leon, Joseph, and Clyde. All three suffered from psychotic delusional disorder. All three claimed to be Jesus. All three were patients of psychologist Milton Rochaic, who wrote the three Christs of Ypsilanti about his experience with these would-be messiahs. Rochaic labored for two years with these men, trying to break reality in on their delusions. It was a tough go, almost barren of progress, Finally, Rochaic decided to try a risky experiment. He put Leon, Joseph, and Clyde together. They slept bed side by side in the same room. They ate meals at the same time and at the same table. They were assigned and shared the same tasks, and every day they met together for group therapy. And in the end, the experiment failed miserably. Leon, Joseph, and Clyde were each so convinced That they were the Messiah, so affronted by the other's claims to that status, so terrified by the prospect of themselves being merely ordinary, that no amount of contrary evidence, no amount of airtight reasoning, no amount of impassioned pleading could dislodge their delusions. There were some minor breakthroughs. Leon, who had claimed that he was married to the Virgin Mary, finally admitted the woman was only his sister-in-law. But the breakthroughs didn't amount to much and they didn't last long. What endured was the Messiah complex. In one group discussion, one of the men announced, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God, and I am on a mission. I was sent here to save the earth. How do you know? Rokeach asked. God told me. One of the other men shot back, I never told you any such thing. Now let's confess, you have those moments, don't you? You know what I mean? Those moments where it all depends on you? You're the only one who really gets the big picture? Who really knows what the score is? Who really has what it takes? In your mind, in your hands is the answer, the only answer? If only these other lunkheads around you would acknowledge it. If only they would see you for who you are. But they're too insecure for that. As the pastor of a church of about 300 or so people, I have discovered that all of us to varying degrees suffer from a Messiah complex. Some of our discussions are rooted in that condition. I've heard them. I've been part of them. How do you know we're supposed to start that new ministry? Well, God told me. I never told you any such thing. (laughs) See, like another pastor I know, I have a fear that someday someone will write a book entitled The 300 Christs of Fayette. (laughs) Maybe James, the Lord's brother, had that same concern about the church of his day. It seems more than possible as we look at today's text. Look with me at James chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not which, that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That, my friends, is a pact. Passage. So much so that I may spend three sermons on it. Wisdom, God's wisdom, seems to be the keynote of this section. Revisiting a topic that James introduced back in chapter one, it seems a natural flow out of his treatise on the power of our words. As he pointed out, our words emanate from something deep within us, our heart, and they are powerful. Whether you are a teacher in the church, whose words carry great influence, according to chapter 3, verse 1, or someone having a conversation with a brother and sister whose mind can be swayed toward good or bad actions, the use of our words requires wisdom, James says. Heavenly wisdom. So James gives us the skinny on wisdom here. I call it the wow factor. God's wisdom on wisdom. He outlines two kinds of wisdom in this text, godly wisdom and godless wisdom. And he's calling us to discernment, how to know the difference between the two. Wisdom directs us not only in how we use our words, but how we live our lives. True wisdom is identified by the quality of the life it produces. Let me say that again. True wisdom is identified by the quality of life that it produces. And there are four things that we ought to recognize according to James here in this text. And I've broken them down, broken them down into four words that you can remember. They are these. Evaluate, demonstrate, differentiate, and appropriate. The first thing, evaluate. Recognize the call for personal examination. Personal examination, verse 13, the first part of the verse. Who among you is wise and understanding? I think as Christians, we need to recover our humanity, in a sense, or maybe uncover it. The fact that we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think is a a reality that most of us are pretty unwilling to admit. But James' opening question in chapter three, in verse 13 here, though it is likely rhetorical, is nonetheless exposing. He says, who among you is wise and understanding? James says, come on, step right up. Who among you? Are you young man? Are you kind lady? Would you say that you have wisdom? If I were to ask you to fit yourself into a category this morning, which would it be? Wise, unwise, or otherwise? (laughs) Most of us immediately want to place ourselves into the wise category, don't we? And even after reading these verses, we would still tend to squeeze ourselves into the more favorable slot depending on who we're comparing ourselves to. And frankly, we usually compare ourselves to others in very self-serving ways, don't we? Psychologists tell us that we compare ourselves to others in three different ways. Upwardly, we compare ourselves upwardly with those better off, laterally with people on the same level, and downwardly with those worse off than us. Each carries its own dangers. The first incites envy and bitter jealousy. The second... Competition. That's selfish ambition. And the third, when we compare ourselves to those lower, it incites pride and arrogance. So bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, pride and arrogance, gee, precisely the things addressed in this text by James. But as we've seen so far in this letter, James has a way of changing our view of things, doesn't he? We want to squeeze ourselves into one place, James forces us out of there into another. We start out thinking of ourselves one way, and by the end of the text, we're blubbering on the floor in a puddle of conviction. That's the book of James. Today's text is no different. James confronts us with the true comparison, and here it is, comparing ourselves with the word of truth. The true wisdom James is talking about here is rooted in the Old Testament Jewish concept of wisdom being practical and moral rather than theoretical and philosophical. As we saw in the opening chapter, it can be defined as knowing how to live God's way in God's world. That's a good definition of wisdom. Knowing how to live God's way in God's world. It's wisdom that usually confounds the secular world. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes these words, beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Look at verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us what? Wisdom from God wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption here is wisdom according to proverbs 9:10 the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy one is understanding so recognize first of all god's call to self-examination evaluate who among you is wise and understanding. Before you answer that question, remember this verse in Proverbs 9. Only the one who fears the Lord is wise and understanding. And how do you know if you really fear the Lord? That's James's next point. The second point, James says is that we need to recognize the need for a practical incarnation in other words demonstrate demonstrate look at verses 13 and 14 who is wise and understanding let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom let me just stop right there James says let him show and those words are strong words literally they mean it means to expose to the eyes In other words, James is saying, prove it by your life. You say you're wise and understanding? Prove it by your life. True wisdom, then, does the right thing in the right way at the right time and for the right purpose. As Jesus put it, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds, Jesus said in Matthew 11, 19. True wisdom then is identified by the quality of the life that it produces. Again, verses 13 and 14. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Mark Green wrote in the book, Fruitfulness on the Front Lines, these words, he said, our values and beliefs shape our behavior. Take a culinary example. He says, I love eggs. I can relate to that. I love eggs. Particularly scrambled eggs. Soft, but not runny. With lots of freshly milled black pepper and salt. Salt. However, for the most of the last two decades, scientific research seemed to indicate that eggs contributed to high levels of cholesterol. So, he says, I ate fewer eggs. The teaching I had received, the doctrine I had accepted, the beliefs I held about eggs led to the dramatic reduction in my egg consumption, right? Your beliefs and your values shape your behavior. But then then about two years ago, a new era dawned. Scientific research revealed that eggs could be consumed in reasonable numbers without affecting cholesterol levels. Yeah. (laughs) So the doctrine on eggs had changed, and I was liberated to live life to the full. My egg cup runneth over, he says. (laughs) Indeed, now all that remains for my joy to be complete, he says, is for someone to discover that eating large quantities of Stilton, that's English cheese, is actually the key to longevity. (laughs) Fitness and octogenarian mental acuity. I would say bacon there, (laughs) Beliefs and values shape your action, whether we are aware of it or not. Let me ask you a question because James does. Is godly wisdom shaping your behavior? Is it shaping your conduct? How does it seem to those around you? Maybe you shouldn't answer that question. You line up with Leon, Joseph, and Clyde. How does it seem to those around you? James qualifies the behavior here that stems from true wisdom as good. And that word is important. That word means praiseworthy, noble, excellent, honorable. The word carries the idea of beautiful by means of purity of life. Well adapted to its ends. In other words, it brings glory to God. Is it characterized, according to James, by having the right outward manifestation? First of all, does it exhibit moral responsibility? Because that's what James is talking about when he uses the term wisdom. Peter alluded to this in his exhortation as to how Christ followers ought to conduct themselves in the midst of a world antagonistic to Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12 says this, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation, i.e. Christ's coming again in judgment. And I really appreciate Karen and Bill's message this morning. They said it very clearly. How do you declare your faith in in a culture that's antagonistic to the gospel? Love. Who's going to rail against love? And to teachers, Paul gives the charge in Titus chapter two, verses seven and eight. He says, in everything, set them as an example by doing what is good in your teaching. Show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Now, my email inbox is bombarded with survey results regarding how the world views Christians today. And I must tell you that the emerging picture is not what those verses I just read describe. Jesus, however, said, let your light shine before men in such a way, right? In such a way that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who's in heaven. Not to glorify you, not to glorify me, but to glorify God. And when we live lives contrary to the true wisdom that James describes in this text with selfish ambition and bitter jealousy in our hearts, the world ends up vilifying God, not glorifying God. Right? And that's what's happening, isn't it? So that means acting and living in the manner which James describes as the gentleness of wisdom, or in a word, humility. Humility. True wisdom, godly wisdom, inspires and produces not only good deeds, but deeds done in humility. Wisdom produces humility. Contrary to the Greek view in James Day, which has continued into our own society, it is not spineless and weak. Humility is not being a doormat. Meekness, in the scriptural term, is power under control. It's who Christ is, as he described himself in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, who said, learn from me, for I am humble. Right? He pronounced the blessing on those who were meek. In Matthew chapter 5, it says, blessed are the meek. It is the contrast of what false wisdom produces, which is arrogance, selfishness, and pride. Rather, humility inspired by wisdom can be best described this way. It maintains a high view of God, a sane view of self, and a generous view of others. Let me say that again. That's humility. It's a high view of God, a sane view of self, and a generous view of others. Douglas Moo put it this way. He says, Christian meekness or humility comes from understanding our position as sinful creatures in relationship to a glorious and majestic God. And this humility before God should then translate as humility toward everybody else. In contrast to this, James points to the graphic and vivid picture of someone not operating out of the place of true wisdom, and there's absolutely no mistaking it here. It is the polar opposite of morality and humility. If a person claiming to be wise harbors these things in their heart, they are in fact actively living a lie, James says. It's an empty boast, since true wisdom results in a lifestyle characterized by humility Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition indicates something different, doesn't it? It indicates a wrong inward motivation. Verse 14 says that if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from heaven. According to Jesus, the heart is where everything emanates from, right? Our words and our actions The heart is the center and the seat of spiritual and physical life. It's really part of your soul. As far as it is affected and it's stirred by our passions and our thoughts and desires and emotions, you know what it is? It's the real you. It's the real you. And a bitter heart yields a sour spirit and a septic soul. So, in the words of my mentor... Karen's father, how's your soul today? How's your soul? Does it harbor bitter jealousy? Because that's what he says here. Let's look at that first bitter jealousy. A person who cultivates this kind of heart harbors hard feelings toward others. But it's more than that. The root of the word bitter carries the idea of piercing, it's harsh. And the term jealousy or envy means to boil with heat. It's the term from which we get our word zeal. A lot of times we think of zeal in a positive sense. Here, it's a very negative sense. It's used in the, to describe the fierce desire to promote your own opinion to the exclusion of everybody else's. It's resentful of anyone who threatens your territory. If someone who differs with you is successful, you're jealous of them and you're bitter against them. Persons consumed by bitter envy and selfish ambition will usually talk about it with anyone who will give them a listening ear to discredit and to destroy that threat to their own little kingdom. But when they vent their feelings, they deceive and expose themselves. Coupled with bitter jealousy comes the conjoined twin sibling of selfish ambition, he says. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. This word originally carried the idea of seeking office through strife. I think Aristotle used it about electioneering. In other words, gaining political office through unfair means. Seeking power by unjust means. It means part rivalry, part ambition. It's all about me. It's all about self. Think back to the drawn-out circus of the recent election campaigns. That's selfish ambition. A clear biblical example of this is found in the account of Absalom's underhanded revolt and accession to the throne of David in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition drove him to deceive and distort the situation to his own ends. And the scripture says that he stole away the hearts of all Israel and usurped David's throne. It's the Absalom syndrome. You always have to put your best foot forward to make somebody else look bad. You always have to somehow take something away from somebody else to make you look better. And it happens in the church. It happens all the time. It happens among so-called brothers and sisters, among preachers and teachers and worship leaders and college professors, camp, people campaigning and competing for position using whatever manipulation and deceptive means that they can to gain influence and power. This says James, is absolutely not the fruit of true godly wisdom. It is absolutely polar opposite from that. On the contrary, it is humanistic, it is arrogant, and it is a flat-out lie against the truth. Read verse 14. I'm not making this stuff up. This is the Holy Spirit. James says, look, if you think you have spiritual wisdom and understanding and yet your life is motivated by selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, if you have to lift yourself up in every conversation to look better than somebody else, if you're constantly putting others down subtly, slyly by planting seeds of doubt in other people's minds, not outright defamation, mind you, just enough under the wire so it creates a question. If you can't do something good and let it go unnoticed without receiving personal recognition or patting yourself on the back, don't boast about having wisdom, James says, because you don't have it. It's a lie. You're lying against the truth of what God says is true wisdom because true wisdom is humble. True wisdom is selfless. It's not selfish. That describes you even a little bit. You might need to take your messianic place alongside of Leon, Joseph, and Clyde. Author John Ortberg writes, aim for the three messiahs and you end up playing the three stooges. Larry, Moe, and Curly arguing over their place in the Trinity. As we read about this, we don't know whether to laugh or to cry. The bitter irony is the very delusion to which they clung so tenaciously is what cut them off from life. To stop being the Messiah sounded terrifying to them. But it would have been their salvation if they could only have tried. If Leon and Joseph and Clyde could have stopped competing to see who gets to be the Messiah, they could have become Leon, Joseph, and Clyde. To maintain the illusion that you are the Messiah, you must shut out any evidence to the contrary. If you want to be your own God, you have to settle for living in a tiny little universe where there is room for only one person, and that's you. Your world could grow infinitely bigger, the author says, if you were only willing to become appropriately small. Instead, we ought to address and embrace practices that really help us avoid this kind of pride and arrogance. Recently, I read an article by a pastor that spoke to this concept. The title of the article was Balancing Humility and Confidence, Every Leader's Challenge. It says, one way to avoid arrogance is to embrace the humbling experiences God brings into our lives instead of resenting embarrassing moments. Welcome them as, as, as uh, reminders of our humanity. Years ago, I preached a one-week revival meeting in Lawrenceburg, Indiana, 90 minutes from Louisville, he says. I drove up each night, preached, and then drove home. Well, there was an eight-year-old boy in that church who thought I was the greatest thing on earth. His parents told me he idolized me and wanted to be a preacher just like me someday. He got excited when he learned that on that Thursday night I would stay at his house instead of driving home, even sleep in his bedroom. I tried not to let him down. So before we went to sleep, we prayed together and we talked. And after a few minutes of silence, I heard him whimpering, almost sobbing. And when I asked Timmy, what's wrong? He said, you sound like a pig. And I realized I had fallen asleep and started snoring. I tried to calm him down, but he grabbed his pillow and he scurried to his parents' bedroom. And on Friday night, he wouldn't even have anything to do with me. That was humbling, he says. In a second, I went from being the next best thing since the Apostle Paul to a snoring hog. (laughs) God will bring experiences into your life and mind that will keep you humble. Welcome them and laugh about them. They may be just what you need to keep you from becoming arrogant and self-centered. Dallas Willard once said, what matters is not the accomplishments you achieve. What matters is the person you become. True wisdom is identified by the quality of the life that it produces. So recognize God's call to self-examination, evaluate evaluate. Recognize the need for practical incarnation, demonstrate. And then thirdly, we need to learn to Recognize the scope of the spiritual contradiction. So differentiate. Now I'm just going to read these verses here and I might make a few comments on them real briefly. But I'm going to save the majority of getting into the depth of these verses for the next time because we just don't have time to do it today. But look at verses 15 to 17. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing, but the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. You see the contrast? See the contradictions there? And and James is saying you need to differentiate between those two. We need to identify them. And you know what? Not is literally the first word in the sentence in the original language here in verse 15. In your Bibles, it probably says something like, this wisdom is not which, that which comes down from above. But in the original manuscripts, it says, in the original language, it says this, not is this wisdom from above. Meaning emphasis is being placed on that. James is saying, I can't emphasize this enough. This arrogant boasting, this selfish ambition, this lack of humility is by no means from God. And the word from above right there in your text, it's used twice in this context. Interesting word. It's the same word that Jesus used in John chapter three, verse three and verse seven, speaking of the necessity to Nicodemus of being born again. It's the same word, born from above. And you need that to see or enter the kingdom of God, Jesus said to Nicodemus. In other words, what James is saying here is this selfish arrogance, devoid of humility is not born again wisdom. It's not born from above. It's not redeemed. It's not of God. Rather, it's classified as wisdom from below. Notice what he says. It's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. Read the world, the flesh, the devil, right? It's from this world. Horizontal perspective, not heavenly perspective. James says, don't fool yourself. This thinking's not of God. For the godless world is at odds with God. It's unspiritual, natural, fleshly, and we're going to flesh that out next time. It pertains to this life, this, this natural life. It's devoid of the spirit. It's not spiritual. It's natural. And then it's ungodly. It's actually demonic, evil. It's of the devil. And this word is only used here in this text in the scripture. Basically, this so-called wisdom, false wisdom, which doesn't produce a life of humility, is driven by the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is antithetical to the wisdom that comes from God. And it causes, in verse 16, every kind of havoc. And the word that's used there for disorder is, the, is, is a word that indicates anarchy. See what that does? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. It destroys the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It destroys churches. It brings on disorder and every kind of evil that you can imagine. Wasn't it Satan in Isaiah 14 that was known to have said, I will ascend to the throne. I will do this and I will do that. And yet we read that Jesus, who was the very form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to cling to with a white-knuckled grip and exploit to his advantage. No, instead, he emptied himself of the fame and the glory by veiling it in his humanity. He humbled himself and took on the form of a bondservant, a slave. Jesus, my friends, was fame-shy. He was fame-shy. Are we? Are you? Am I? This fame shyness really is it what characterizes our churches today? Even though we have a sense of these truths as believers, Author Zach Eswine has written The Imperfect Pastor. He says, you know, I crave words like these which were spoken to Jesus. In Mark chapter one, verse 37, everyone is looking for you. We crave that, don't we? These are fame words, he says. And yet if Jesus was the famous one, why would people need to look for him? Ever think about that? Conventional wisdom would agree with the counsel of Jesus' own family. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. Show yourself to the world, his brothers said to him. They did not understand why a great worker for God would choose a manner of life that would be characterized as working in secret. I'm not sure that I or most of the church communities that I have served, he writes, have understood this either. So public was the buzz about Jesus that he could not openly enter a town. Shouldn't he seize this platform for God? And yet his brothers recognized something about Jesus that irritated them Jesus is fame shy. Jesus seemed drawn not to the spotlight, but away from the spotlight. Disciples and friends had to search for him. He wasn't tweeting. His blog lay unattended. His email responses went unresponded to. They were not immediate. Where they often found him was alone and in desolate places praying. In fact, it seems that just when Jesus was at the right place at the right time and the opportunity to advance his work through greater celebrity called out to him, he intentionally allowed the call to go to voicemail and disappeared for a while. Jesus would have driven any publicist in congregation mad, he says. In fact, after he did something great, Jesus often asked that no one say anything about it. Don't go tell anybody about this. But what if Jesus' reason for quieting the talk about himself was actually born out of living what he actually taught? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, Jesus says. We can somehow diminish God glorifying things when we sound the trumpet so that all can see us, according to Matthew chapter 6, verse 2. He believed that doing great things for God is done best with our left hand, not knowing what our right hand is doing. When our practices for him go unnoticed and unacknowledged by the press, the church, and even those closest to us. I think all of us need to ask ourselves some really pestering and probing questions in light of all of that. Can I handle being overlooked? Do I have a spirituality that equips me to do an unknown thing for God's glory? How does the fame and indifference of Jesus inform the way we go about growing our ministries and our churches Are we willing to forego what works in the world for what Jesus teaches us to trust in? Mark Buchanan writes, here's a surprise. I'll try to wrap up with this. God wants us to have a Messiah complex. You're like, what? What are you talking about? It's not a delusion. Paul says, be imitators of God. And live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant aroma, a sacrifice to God. That's Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives, Paul says again a bit further on, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I have given them glory that you gave me, Jesus prayed in John 17, that they may be one even as we are one. As the Father has sent me, Jesus said, so I send you. Sounds like a Messiah complex to me. The right kind. So let me ask you, do you have it? And how would you know? What are the hallmarks, the touchstones of a true Messiah complex? Well, it's marked by what verse 17 says. It's pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. Here's the thing I'll leave you with. The Apostle Paul spells out the Messiah complex that Jesus' followers ought to have very clearly in Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, and your attitude should be as the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, being found as an appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, here it is. He made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant. That's the Messiah complex Jesus wants us to have. John 13, washing the disciples' feet. He said, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. So recognize the fruit then of the proper application. That's the word appropriate. And it's very simple. In verse 18, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peace that leads to righteousness is peace that steadfastly refuses to let go of its standard justice, righteousness, and the wisdom of God. It's Comes from the wisdom of God. Are you a peacemaker? Here's the deal. The sons of Korah, the Psalm, one of the Psalms of Korah, really kind of summarized the whole text. Psalm 85, verses 8 through 13. Why don't you close your eyes? And make this our closing prayer. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants. But let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Amen.